Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. Today my conversation is with Atlanta-based drummer Brian Hudson. Brian is one of these guys that has been around the city for years, playing in bands, church gigs, sessions, just doing what most of us do, which is quietly piecing together a cool career from an ever-changing list of sources. His longest-standing gigs are with the bands Memory Dean and Soul Hound, and he recently realized a long-held dream by releasing his debut record as a leader entitled Next Level. Brian is also involved with an organization called Georgia Music Partners, which lobbies politicians and institutions on behalf of the music community to increase and improve the music business infrastructure in the city of Atlanta and the state of Georgia. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net, where you can check out past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. You can also follow us on social media and share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag WorkingDrummer to get reposted. Lastly, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, and your ratings and reviews on those platforms are very helpful. These days, in-ear monitors are almost required equipment for working drummers. Problem is, a lot of them don't sound very good, and the ones that do are really expensive. Session Ace solves both of these problems with high-quality dual-driver ears for 99 bucks and quad drivers for only $199. Using a hybrid design combining armature and dynamic drivers, the frequency response is as good or better than anything you'll find up to $1,000. And the accessory package that comes with every pair includes cable extensions, quarter-inch adapters, and a huge variety of ear tips so you're sure to get the right fit and feel. Matt and I have been using these ears for a few months now, putting them through the paces both live and in the studio, and I'd recommend them to any pro musician who needs full, clear sound in their ears but doesn't have a grand just laying around. I'd even recommend them to the cats who do have a grand laying around. Truthfully, I put off buying ears for a long time, and these saved me from having to drop a ton of money or getting stuck with bad sound. Visit sessionace.com slash working drummer to check them out along with the other tools and accessories sessionace offers. Once again, that's sessionace.com slash working drummer. So as you might expect, Brian is a very down-to-earth guy. He just seeks to get quality work done, whether he's doing a session or playing his church gig or meeting with the governor. It was uh, particularly interesting to hear about his political activity and how we can all work with our state and local governments to create all kinds of opportunities for musicians. So let's hear about it with Brian Hudson. So you just released this record like six months ago. Yeah, August of 2017. And, and that was the first time that you had tackled this kind of project of, of recording, composing, arranging, producing, correct, like all yep. under one roof. Yeah, that's correct. So yeah, yeah talk about that process and, and who you did it with. And well, so yeah, um, so I have, I think since my early years in college, I always wanted to do something that had my own signature on it. And, and I tried to put some bands together over the years and we would do gigs and then we would try to write and it just never kind of uh, clicked mm-hmm. and we never could figure out kind of what the next steps were. So I guess it was in 2016, I reached out to Randy Hexter, who's brilliant producer, yeah. keyboardist, pianist, all around, just badass, uh, as we all know. Yes. Uh, 
and just, you know, brought the idea up, told, told Randy, we got together for lunch, told Randy what I was looking to do. Of course, he's an incredible composer himself. Uh, I'm not necessarily a composer. I have a ton of ideas in my head, like a lot of musicians. But mm-hmm. So Randy and I met for, for several months and shared ideas. And so what I did is he had, he had a great suggestion of going back to my studio, basically coming up with grooves and coming up with ideas, sending them to him, and then the two of us kind of working out what that song or what that track was going to look like. So mm-hmm. Randy was a, a true partner in this process, and I was extremely honored that he took me on yeah, yeah. <laughs> as a, a complete novice and uh and he's really become a, a kind of a mentor because he's taught me about recording and composing and just doing your whole thing and so uh so yes yeah, so we worked on that for a while and really the early part of uh of uh, 2017 is when i dug in and really sent some ideas to him and and the ideas just came from, I mean, you know how it is when you start playing, you just, they come from wherever. Right. And so I, I wanted to do, I didn't want to do a fusion uh, album that nobody would listen to. And then I didn't want to do a smooth jazz album because that's not really my thing. Right. But I wanted to do something that was kind of a mix between more popular music and fusion, but also have... Uh, you know, some catchy kind of uh, uh, music in there without being too drummy. Right. I'm more of a groove player anyway. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so it worked out. And uh, I think the end product was, was fantastic. I'm really excited how it turned out. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting when, when drummers make records <clears throat> under their own name. You know, a lot of times you expect it to be super drummy. Right. Um, but, but most times it's not. Like, it's really groove-based. Right. Um, uh, like Peter Erskine leap, leaps to mind. His mm-hmm. the Peter Erskine trio is like very understated, right. and very minimalist. I just saw Sonny Emery's cachet yeah. at the Vista Room the other night, um, which you know he he took he he definitely took his uh, his solo at the end. <laughs> but but most of the night was just songs. Yeah. There were songs that like him and his bandmates and his family had written together, and he was just being sunny yeah like he wasn't hogging the stage at all yeah um, i mean some of the earlier ones i mean dave wacko obviously some of his songs were groove based but then they were also blaring with you know great chops that, right. that he has and uh, but then some of the earlier ones like omar hakeem i remember his album was mm-hmm. total groove steve ferroni has one as well mm-hmm. russ miller yeah. uh, has a couple as well that when I, I remember hearing those and thinking wow these are more groove based and not you know not just blaring drums and, and russ was you know, I've never met him, but he's a huge inspiration for me with this project and kind of getting out on my own. And so I kind of looked at some of the stuff he did over the years, and that kind of pushed me to do my own thing. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, and talk about the compositions, because you said, like, you know, you would you would come up with grooves. Randy would—was was the melodic and harmonic content mostly Randy, or did you come up with those ideas as well? Great question. So what I would do is I would come up with some grooves, have an idea of what the song, how I wanted it to be presented. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the instrumentation was a big part of it. And then kind of what the overall goal was for the song. So Mm -hmm. I had the concept in my head. I put together the groove. I kind of, when I was playing it and and tracking it just as a a demo, I was kind of singing a song in my head. Mm -hmm. And so when I sent it to Randy, we would talk, and then I would tell him, okay, I would like you know upright bass in this song, yeah. uh, or trumpet and sax in this song with keys and guitar, and and uh, you know not all songs have uh, trumpet, not, actually not all songs have sax either, mm-hmm. but I wanted a little mixture, and he is uh, brilliant, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and was able to literally interpret kind of my ideas and send some ideas back and. 
we would talk about him and he was usually dead on. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the first track he sent back was the song that ended up being 78, which is a seven, eight, seven, eight tune to go from seven, eight to four, four. And, and I, if I remember correctly, I pretty much sent him that structure and of course, he added his magic and said, how about this? And I got it back and listened to it. I said, oh, my gosh, this is exactly what I heard in my head. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the brilliance of, of Randy and his many years of experience. Yeah, so. yeah. It's a cool process because I think a, a lot of drummers, um, you know, don't don't feel confident in, in the arena of melody and harmony. Right. You know, even if they know something about it, you know, th- next to somebody like Randy. (laughs) Yeah, there's no comparison. (laughs) Right. But, but I mean that, that didn't stop you and that shouldn't stop anybody from, from like getting into the process. Like you don't, you don't don't have to put it all on yourself to come up with chord progressions and come up with melodies, but you can, you know, be part of the process and bring someone into it and learn from them. Correct. Yeah. And and come up with, you know, music that you can still say is yours. Right. Like it didn't come a hundred percent from you. Correct. That's right. This is your, record yeah it was true it was a true collaboration yeah yeah and and you're right i mean it is under my name and i'm promoting it and doing all the legwork and all that stuff and but randy was there's no way i could have done it without him yeah uh and you're right i mean it's when i when i first thought about this like i said we tried to get some guys together and just jam and try to write and that's difficult you know i mean you're jamming for a while and if you record you go back and i know matt chamberlain he i heard some interviews with him he was working with critters buggin and their early albums was just them jamming for hours. Mm-hmm. And then they would basically cut and splice it and then come up with some tunes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of theirs is improvising. And I wanted more of a structured, uh, I mean, the songs, I wanted the songs to be more structured. And so um, coming up with this groovy, and, and Randy had mentioned he had done that with some other drummers as well, or another drummer, I should say, uh, that we both know who, who that is. And, and that person worked with, with Randy and kind of a similar approach. And so... Um, who is that? I don't know. Uh, I think he worked with Sonny. Emery a little bit on some okay. stuff, not on all of his stuff, but gotcha. I think before and some of the stuff. So cool. I uh, hope I'm okay to say that. <laughs> I, I don't see why not. <laughs> uh, but they're they're good friends and, and they've been working together for years. So yeah. anyway, so we kind of took that that same approach and uh, it worked out. It worked out great. Uh, and then to have the guys, the other guys, play on the album just made it total. Uh, just added the magic to it mm-hmm. and, and the finishing touches on it. So. And who else plays on it? So I was very, very fortunate uh, to get these guys to agree to do this. Um, Adam Nitty played bass on four of the tracks. Adam uh, is an Atlanta guy, uh, lives in Nashville now. My gosh, he's played with everybody from Kenny Loggins to he just played with Mike Stern in mm-hmm. Nashville this past week with Keith Carlock. Oh, those um, guys. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, he's played with Dave Weckle Band for a while. So Adam, uh, just a sweetheart of a guy, agreed to do it. Uh, we did that remotely, so mm-hmm. I sent them the tracks. Of course, you know he sent them back, and they were absolutely perfect first right. try, right. Uh, which does, was not a surprise. Uh, but Adam played on four tracks. Uh, Joe Rita, who's a local guy here, uh, played on four tracks on bass. Sam Skelton is a brilliant sax player, played on yeah. all the tracks that had sax on it. Uh, I also had Melvin Jones, uh, right. incredible uh, trumpet uh, trumpet player, uh, played on, uh, I think there's two tracks with trumpet. Mm-hmm. And then Trey Wright played guitar on all the tracks. Cool. Uh, and Trey's brilliant as well. Right. So they're all brilliant. So Awesome. And talk about promoting this and publishing it and, and you know, kind of the, 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 the landscape 
um, that you that you put this thing out into with Spotify and, and yeah. iTunes and I mean it's where? quite a process it's uh, you know it's almost like leaving a, a regular job and starting your own, you know starting a new business mm-hmm. which is you kind of equate the same thing because you you have you have to create a product and then once you have that product you have to see if people are going to listen to it obviously mm-hmm. and you got to do that through promotion so first thing i did was i hired carrie gaffney carry on productions she's out of augusta uh she's a jazz promoter mm-hmm. um actually worldwide not just here in georgia and she i don't think there's anybody that has more energy than carrie mm-hmm. <laughs> so she that's, that's uh, a good thing to have a good a thing and, yeah, <laughs> absolutely and a promoter so she you know, we talked about it. She listened to the album and loved it and said, this is, I think this is going to do well. I have no idea if, you know, what's going to happen. Of course, there's no promises. And I didn't either. You know, I said, if I'm going to do this, let's promote it, uh, invest a little bit of money in the promotion. And if nothing happens, nothing happens. But if people listen to it, then that's great. Mm-hmm. And to my surprise, uh, we charted on, on several of the major jazz charts, um, the Roots Music Report jazz chart. I think we peaked at number three mm-hmm. on that. Uh, which was amazing to see my name up there with Christian McBride and uh, some other great yeah, play. Yeah. Mike Stern was on one of those charts, and I was just scratching my head trying <laughs> to figure out who's this guy, who, right. who am I? Yeah. Uh, and then there's, I guess, the college chart, uh, NACC chart. We peaked at number seven, which is the college radio station. So uh-huh. uh, between those two, I think we were on Jazz Week for in the top 100 for nine weeks straight, which was a lot of fun as well. And we didn't quite crack the top 25, but we got pretty close. Mm-hmm. Um, and from what Carrie understood, uh, what she told me was this is deemed fusion. And so most of the, the artists that were, you know, peaking at number one or staying at number one for a long time were either uh, big band uh, uh, artists. Like I think Christian McBride's last project was a big band. I think mm-hmm. he won a Grammy with that project. Mm-hmm. That's a great album, actually. Um, or smooth jazz. And right. so, you know, this is kind of a, you know, fusions, not and everybody's listening to fusion. Mm-hmm. So, um, so she was very excited. I was obviously blown away by the response uh, and have my, the station that my first college, we can get into that later. I went to USF in Tampa, that station, play it, play my record and then have the local Atlanta jazz station, WCLK, play it on a regular rotation was was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you do have to spend some some time and money promoting shit when it's, you know, you, you can't just, you can't just put it out there and like hope it catches on or catches fire. Like, um, whether it's, whether it's with a promoter or, you know, actually spending money on, um, Facebook or Instagram or those, those things. Um, I'm, I'm coming to grips with the fact that (laughs) it is kind of necessary. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, it's the, the, the music, uh, landscape out there is, is not necessarily a, a meritocracy, and uh, shouting shit from the rooftops will get you noticed. <laughs> That's right. You know, by, you by the people who some, you know, the listeners or whoever else you want to hear your shit. Yeah. Um, you have to self-promote and not everybody's good at that. I'm not the best at that either. Mm-hmm. And you have to be your own champion because if you're not going to be it, then who's going to do that for right. you? Your wife, maybe. <laughs> but then, and then you get to a point with your wife, it's like, okay, I'm done with this. Right. You know, it's like, let's move on to something else. But you're right. I mean, you've got a product. You want people to hear it, obviously. Um, in today's age with Spotify, you're not going to sell, you know, thousands of records necessarily. Maybe you would, but mm-hmm. doubtful. Uh, I had a, a buddy in California who had a, a solo album and he said, you can hire a promoter 
or you can have a thousand CDs in your closet, like I did for my first album. So he recommended I, I hire a promoter, and it worked. Yeah. And uh, you know, the, the coolest thing I think it's really humbling and, and very flattering at the same time. When I got my first kind of Spotify reports on, you know, who was listening to the album, it doesn't give you names, but it gives you locations mm-hmm. and age, you know, uh, male, female, age group, things like that, and to see. <laughs> To see my album being played in the Philippines and Argentina and Brazil and London and Ireland and Canada and yeah. all over the world. I yeah. mean, really, Japan. Um, and then those resulting in some sales was pretty... I was blown away by it. Mm-hmm. And it's not... It's, like I said, it's very humbling. And you don't really think about that, but Spotify's got a great tracking uh, process where they, they send you reports or you can log on and see exactly kind of how your album's doing or what tracks are being played the most... And that, you know, hopefully will help determine where you're going to play gigs if you are going to tour nationally or internationally. Right. And that's a whole nother difficult process as well. Right. Um, who are you? You know, you're trying to get, <laughs> get gigs and people don't know who you are. And, well, my album's doing well. Well, so is this person. You know? right. So yeah. anyway, so that was really cool to see. And, and, and I continue to update that and, and check that on a regular basis. It's like, oh, who's listening now? And a new country pops up and. You know, Sweden, it's like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. How many? Oh, 15 listeners. Great. That's not a lot, but it is a, it's a lot for me. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so that's been a really cool process of seeing uh, just globally the album do really, really well. Yeah. Really cool. And are you going to try to, like, you, you did a couple of live dates for the release mm-hmm. of the record, but are you, you going to try to do more? Are you going to try to tour a little bit? Or? So, yeah, so uh, that's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> that's always the goal, isn't it? That's the goal. But, uh, <laughs> figuring that process out is definitely a, a, a learning curve. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I've been in bands for so long where I just showed up. You know, hey, we have gigs here. We're going to yeah. do a run to South Carolina this weekend or Tennessee or whatever. Show up here and let's go. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Make sure you know your stuff. Mm-hmm. But now you're the boss. You're the promoter. You know, you're trying to get your band booked. You gotta, once you get booked, you got to make sure you have the players because the guys that I mentioned before are all incredibly talented and very, very busy. And I've been fortunate that they've been available in the past and they're available for a few gigs that I've booked this year. So mm-hmm. that's the goal is to try to get as many gigs as possible. And that's where a booker comes in. That's true. Like you yeah. mentioned the promoter for the record, but like, you know, Ruby Bell and the Sulfonics just released this new record and they just got a new booker. Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing kind of for the first time, like how important and beneficial a booker with with connections and and the power of persuasion and and all that shit to just go to bat for you with venues and festivals and whatever that you know if 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 a band or an artist kind of sends their thing to a venue or a festival right. you know it might get noticed it might not but if a pro, if a promoter or a booker who already has relationships with the people that run these venues and festivals and they've sent artists to them before and they're trusted it's like okay i sent you this band last year check out this it's other band, band this year um, that's exactly right I, and the same thing goes with a promoter you can you can promote anything you want on facebook or instagram or twitter but it's only going to go so far i mean you right. can pay for ads on facebook you may get you know a thousand people to look at it, but does that result in Spotify plays or or record sales? Mm-hmm. Probably not. And so the same thing with a booking agent. You hire a promoter who has those relationships with the different radio stations all across the country because she or he is going to those conferences and, and networking with them and and knows Jazz Week and knows you know all the magazines and things like that. So yeah. the same thing with a booking agent, and, and it's hard in a fusion. Category. I hate mm-hmm. to categorize it because it's, I guess it's jazz, but yeah. you know, there's different segments of jazz. I hate to categorize it. It's music. 
uh, but the booking agencies and the clubs look at that kind of stuff. Right. So they categorize. They can. <laughs> are you fusion? Are you smooth jazz? Well, I, mean, I don't know. Listen to it. You tell me. It's definitely not smooth jazz, but you tell me what you think. So. Right. Uh, so the goal is also to promote, or excuse me, to, to partner with a booking agent at some point. But those are few and far between in the jazz world. Right. So hopefully that'll happen soon. South Florida, correct, yep. for, and then transferred to University of Georgia. That's right, in Athens. Um, I interviewed uh, Seth Hendershot a few, okay. a few months ago and talked talked a lot about Athens yep. and the scene there and kind of the history there. What was what was your experience there? You know, um, well, when I first went to University of South Florida, it was I was all in for music, and that was my path. I had my my teacher growing up went there. A guy named Jason Harnell was a guy I took private lessons with for a long time. Does he live in L.A. now? He's in L.A. I yeah. know that guy. I know Jason. Phenomenal player. You studied with him in Florida. Yeah, for he he's he we grew up in the same area. He's a little older than I am, uh-huh. but he was my main private teacher. Uh, during high school, God, that's taught, small world. taught the drum line and incredible player. He's and he's a madman, like great. He, he's a he's a well, technically and musically, he's just phenomenal. But also, he's he's just a mad scientist. He's an <laughs> he's, absolute goofball. Yeah, he's he's a goofball. And, well, <laughs> yeah. great player. Yeah, he's a great player, great guy. He's teaching a lot out there as well. But anyway, so Jason, his path was teaching us, and he went to USF. And I thought, well, if it's good enough for Jason, I'm going to do the same thing. Got in. Did that. I really got burned out, um, and I know you went to music school as well. I mean, I found myself, you know, in a practice room by myself a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, eating in there, taking naps in there, sleeping in there, yeah. studying marimba, studying drum set for the next, you know, class I had for the jazz trio or for whatever. And, and I just, I, it wasn't the experience that I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I loved it and met some great folks and um, great some great great players and played around Tampa a lot. But then realized. I thought I wanted a different college experience. My brother uh, went to Florida State and kind of had the the big college with the big football team. I'm a huge sports fan, so I wanted to, to do that. And had some friends that, that went to Athens and went and visited them and realized, wow, this is where R.E.M. and B-52s and all these great bands are from. And so yeah. let's do it. So I transferred. I did not study music, but I played a ton of uh-huh. music uh, in Athens. So Yeah. And... Um what did you end up getting your degree in? Political science. Oh, wow. Right, okay. <laughs> um, so, and how long did you spend in Athens? Uh, two and a half years. Yeah. yeah. And so just, three years, actually, yeah. Like gigging around the clubs there. Yeah, it was a total different scene because I, I came from Tampa, which Tampa's big on <laughs> heavy metal, hard rock, and then they have a huge smooth jazz scene. So it's, it's bizarre. Yeah, it's yeah. weird. Uh, maybe it's something about the beach. I don't know. But right, right. when I got to Athens, there's a lot of singer-songwriters and acoustic type of, uh, of artists that I, I got hooked up with and just played uh, on a regular basis almost every Wednesday and Friday nights for three years. And that wow. was kind of my job in college. Right. A lot of buddies were working, and 
I was gigging, getting yeah, cash. You know? Yeah, it was great. So. That's that's cool. And free beer, <laughs> so, which was amazing. That's, so that's always good. Um, so so by the time you graduate, you're you're like. Oh, I guess I mean, let me add one, one thing other because yeah, it's yeah. relevant to Matt. So the guy I played with in college was a guy named Trey Boyer. Played with Trey forever. Um, he ended up moving to Nashville, and Matthew Kraus was his drummer in Nashville. No shit. Yep. God, isn't that crazy? Making all kinds of. Crazy. <laughs> this is such a. Small he told me that world, we saw each man. other in Nashville at the Sakai man a couple. Yeah, years ago, so. yeah. God, that's weird. That's crazy. Yeah. The music business is so weird because in a town like you know. LA or New York or Nashville or even Atlanta, like they're, they're the scenes are so big that you can spend a few years here and, and still not know everybody. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like I've I've been here almost two and a half years and and still it's like do you, do you know so and so plays bass? I'm like right. no, I never met him. That's right. But at the same time, you know, you can we can just sit down and talk and like all of a sudden it's Jason Harnell right. and this guy that played with Matt Krause yeah. and like it's all it's all That's crazy. Sorry, I didn't interrupt you. No, no, no. I thought that was relevant. It is. So. It is totally. Um, so by the time you graduate, like, have you set your sights on Atlanta? Like, you want to come here and play yeah. music? Yeah, we. Uh, my wife's from Georgia originally, South Georgia, so she wanted to stay close to home, mm-hmm. and so we eventually moved to Atlanta and uh, and got hooked up with. Uh, uh, you know, I hadn't played in a few years, and so I. I uh, it's kind of crazy how things happen. I was uh, not to belabor this, but. We went into a Smoothie King, and there was a guy playing bass, and uh, eventually waited on us. <laughs> and, uh, and he sounded great, and I said, oh, man, you sound great. And, you know, Wait a minute. I'm a there, drummer. There, there was yeah. just a guy playing bass yeah. in a Smoothie King? So this guy was working there, and it was it was a dead time, so he was hanging out playing bass. <laughs> and he had like a five or six string. And anyways, I, gotcha. I, I thought maybe the oh, Smoothie no. King just hired a guy to play solo bass in the corner. No. <laughs> That would have been cool, but pretty, pretty sweet. Kid. Yeah, this guy was just—he <laughs> was on a break or something. Right, so right. I just happened to come in with my wife, and uh, long story short, I said I'm a drummer, or whatever. He said the band I play with is looking for a drummer. Are you interested? And I said sure. And it turned out to be um, the Dave Matthews cover band, DMTB, right. DMCB, excuse me. And uh, I said I love Dave Matthews. Let's give it a try. And he said be here and audition. Uh, in front of this crowd. So I'd go and play in Athens. I think we played One Love, which is not there anymore. 200 people there, 300 people there. Right. That was my audition, <laughs> playing Dave Matthews stuff. Yeah. I was like, wow. So I shed, you know, obviously, I guess I got the gig because I played with them for about eight more months. Um, <laughs> their drummer had left, and then he eventually came back, a guy named Lance Tilton, who unfortunately passed away, but he was a brilliant drummer, great guy. Uh, he actually ended up playing with Zach Brown for a little bit as mm-hmm. well. But anyway, so uh, Lance was taking a break. I filled in, played for, I don't know, eight, nine months or whatever, all around the southeast. Um, and then eventually that came to an end when Lance came back. Um, and at that point, I um, I was looking at kind of what was my next step. I got into the kind of the blues scene a little bit and played with some some blues bands here. And then I remembered this band named Memory Dean from college who was started off as an acoustic duo. And um, they made it big and were on Capricorn Records and toured the United States multiple times in Sweden. Yeah. You always got to throw that in there. So right. We toured the U.S. and Sweden. And Sweden. Why Sweden? Why not? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> so they had, uh, they were four, they started off as a duo, became a four piece, and then went back to a duo. And I remember saying to my wife, I said, I'm going to play with those guys. And she said, oh, that'd be great. I love their music. And we knew a lot of the same people. Uh, some of the guys I played with in Athens were really good friends with them. And I remember seeing them play. Anyways, great guys, a lot of mutual friends. 
I remember this is going to date me here, but I put together a mixtape, <laughs> not like the mixtapes that uh, you know some of the rappers have put together, right. but like a mixtape of some some playing that I did with the cover band and with uh, uh, with Trey Boyer, and it was terrible. I mean, the quality was awful, and they listened to it and they actually laughed at it. <laughs> they told me later, uh, but uh, mostly because of the quality, not the right, playing. Right. So that was two thousand one and two thousand one, two thousand two. I guess. I guess it was two thousand one. And they asked me to audition, and uh, I made it. And I've literally been in that band that long. Wow. Uh, and we still play. Yeah. And so it's pretty crazy. I was thinking about this weekend that, you know, I've been playing with those guys for 16, 17 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've done everything. It's just, and they're like my brothers. Right. You know, they're incredible right. guys and, and uh, just phenomenal family men and kids. And the whole families for both of them are just awesome. And mm-hmm. so they really have become. Uh, family and just I hadn't really thought about it because you know as far as how long I've been playing with them but you know they were looking for their hit quote unquote hit songs were more kind of uh, 99x which was alternative rock and they uh-huh. were looking for more of a funky uh, a new approach to their music having kind of a funky edge groove more groove bass and yeah. so uh, when we got together and jammed it just clicked immediately yeah, yeah. so uh, they asked me to join and uh, I guess the rest is history. What, and what were the what were the hits they had? It was like nineties nineties stuff. Yeah, so they uh, well they had one song on the radio named uh, "So Complicated," uh-huh. uh, which is a heavy like Tom uh, kind of a, an alternative uh, rock song, right. uh, heavy toms and. Uh, still a lot of fun to play when we yeah. play it, but that was their quote unquote hit, mm-hmm. and uh, they did a video for it, and that, that was part of their Capricorn uh, project when they were with Capricorn, and uh, the song did really well, and they promoted that and toured all over the country mm-hmm. uh, with that song. But uh, we stopped playing it for a long time. Did you? Yeah, because they said enough of that, said, right. guys. This is the song that people remember, and they right. have some other songs that are very much them. They have a song called "Rap Music Sucks" that's takes a bunch of 80s rap songs and puts them into one. It's kind of like Justin Timberlake and Jimmy Fallon rapping on, on Fallon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they do the same thing. Uh, and so that's always a huge request at the shows as well. But, uh, yeah, so, so so Complicated was their song that kind of was on the radio for a long time. So. Right. And, like, activity in that band, I mean, it's been, you mentioned it's been like 16, 17 years. And so activity in that band has ebbed and flowed. It has, yeah. Um, but... It, I, I like that um, it's, you know, the band doesn't sit down and have a come to Jesus and be like, what are we going to do? Are we going to break up or whatever? Like, yeah. it just it keeps going. Sometimes you're busy. Sometimes you're all doing other shit. That's right. Um, yeah. And it's, it's you know, we, we talk all the time on the podcast about how this this business is built on relationships. That's right. And if you can if you can create relationships in a band where you know nobody freaks out if you don't play for a little while. Right. That's right. <laughs> you know, we'll come back to it. We'll do something else. Like everybody, go do your own thing. And yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of a it's it's in a lull right now. Everybody's off. Yeah, doing well, other stuff. You know, we do. Um, we, we play. We still play, uh, mm-hmm. and we do. We it's very select. Um, we'll, you know, we played Smithsville Bar last year. We've, uh, you know, we just do very select dates. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about doing more. We've talked about doing less. You know, it's just kind of whatever we're feeling. And yeah. the thing that's been really cool, mostly for those guys, because it's it's really their band. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm part of it and have been for a long time, but. You know, a few years ago, we hadn't played in a while, actually. We did some private stuff, but we really hadn't played gigging for the public, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And maybe a year and a half, it might have been a little bit longer. And so 
we got together and just said, let's do, let's do a show and see what happens. And they called uh, Jay or, or Bubba, that's their names. Jay Memory and Bubba Dean are their names. Memory Dean. Gotcha. The last name. So Jay called Smith's Old Bar and said, we'd love to play. And they, gosh, Memory Dean, we love you guys. Remember you from the 90s. Pick the date. Right. So we did, and we sold it out in a, a couple of days. Yeah. And I think it was really cool for them to realize that their their music, six albums, you know, from the 90s to early 2000s, their music is still popular with the fans that were, you know, back then in the co- in college. You know, the good news is we joke now the fans that were broke when they were listening to these guys now have some money and right. have jobs. Now they can come and see us play. Right, right. And afford to come out and go to dinner and then come see us play. So uh, we, we joked about that. But it's been really cool to see the resurgence of their music that still lives on. And I think the cool thing about it is people can go to our shows and remember being in college and listening to these guys in Statesboro or, or Georgia Tech or in Athens or right. wherever they were playing at that time. And I think that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the other project uh, that you've been doing is uh, Soul Hound. That's right. Yeah. When did that start? So uh, I guess about three years ago, three or four years ago, um, auditioned for those guys. Uh, mm-hmm. They had me out and auditioned. And I remember uh, Rob Roth is, is the guitar player and the founder. We did one of their songs that has kind of a purdy shuffle mm-hmm. and asked me to play it. And I guess I got it because I got the gig. And afterwards he said, you know, we've had a lot of guys that came in here and we asked them to play a purdy shuffle and they looked at us like we were crazy. Yeah. And you knew it and right. you played it and you know, nobody's going to nail that like Purdy does, but you yeah. played it pretty good, <laughs> you know? So, um, that was kind of the, the test. And so we did that and man, that was a super fun band to play. We're kind of on a little break right now. Right. Guys, some guys are doing some other things, but right. we were hitting it pretty hard for a while and, and did some really fun shows and some amphitheaters and doing some opening gigs for the four tops and, and, uh, the guess who and some others. And, uh, so that was a lot of fun. High energy funk, soul. We kind of put some blues in there, jammed a little bit. So and it's it's partly original and partly covers. Or yeah, mostly. It? I think they have uh, two albums that they did before before me that are fantastic. And it was mostly originals, but then we would throw in some meters and uh, you know just some old soul music as well. Right, so. depending on the event you're playing. Yeah, yeah. Ruby, exactly. Ruby Bell and the Soulphonics are the same way. Like you know, if we if we do a show, yeah, we do the records and the original right, music, right, right. but there are a lot of like corporate events or once in a while we'll do a wedding where, you know, like people hire us because of the original music. So we'll do some of that stuff, but there's definitely like heavy dose of right. just soul covers and stacks. And, and all right. That shit. And you gotta be ready. We, I remember right around when Prince passed away. Right. Can you play purple rain? Yep. Guys, can you play it? Let's, let's do it. And then you know, and again Ollie. with Bowie. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, you know. We didn't do Bowie. We, did, <laughs> we could pull off purple rain in a soul hound kind of way. Yeah, that yeah. was fun doing that kind of stuff. So yeah, um, it's mostly originals, but definitely some covers in there as well. Right. So. so the, like the two kind of biggest projects that you've done, memory Dean and soul hound right now are both on, on like a bit of a break. So yeah. you've been spending time in your studio at That's home right. doing remote recordings. Correct. Talk about setting that up and getting not just the infrastructure of that, but the business of that right. going. That's a great question. So, um, that's been a, that's been a work in progress. It always <laughs> is. As we, were, as we were talking about a little earlier. It's, yeah. you know, figuring out, I mean, the good news is you can, you can set up a remote studio for not a whole lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you got to make sure you have the right room and the mics are huge and the interfaces and, and preamps and things like that are huge as well. So that's, that's 
you know, basically a learning process I've taught myself, mostly mm-hmm. through YouTube and friends just giving me ideas and, hey, do it this way, not this way. Randy was a huge help yeah. and seeing him, how he works. Um, and so, um, yeah, so just building that up and really kind of started taking off last year mm-hmm. um, and, and got some great projects. And, you know, the, the cool thing about that is you never know what's coming in. Uh, the scary thing about it is you never know what's coming in, right. <laughs> if it's going to come in or not. Uh, but when it does, it's, you know, you listen to the song and if you like it, go ahead and agree to do it. And you come to terms and you figure out the time frame. And uh, so, yeah, just, you know, the coolest thing about that is, like I said, you don't know what's coming in and you listen to the music and it could be, you know, a rock tune. It could be a country tune. It could be, you know, some prog rock, which I did last year. Mm-hmm. I did two full albums for a guy in Croatia. Um <laughs> You know, that was an interesting process because the music was different, not something I normally did. And the language barrier was a little challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, we did two full, I think we did 20, 28 tunes, 28 tracks. Um, I think that's going to be finished pretty soon and released sometime this year. 28 uh, tracks. Yeah. Wow. Um, so that was fun and did not expect that. It just literally landed on my lap. And uh, and that was a lot of fun and challenging at the same time. Yeah. I, wasn't really, I'm not really a prog rock kind of guy, but right. kind of got into that and some odd time signatures a little bit. And so, and I, I was also working on my album at the same time. So it was kind of, it was pretty crazy. So right. yeah, so I've, I've uh, reached out and I've got pages on sound better and air gigs. And so I've, I'm getting some gigs through that or some sessions through that, but also just word of mouth. I'm doing some stuff here locally mm-hmm. uh, with some old friends that are doing albums. And um, I actually get to go to a studio coming up down in Valdosta uh, for a project and June, I think, mm-hmm. July, some sometime in the next couple months. Right. Uh, we're working with Mark Neal, who's a uh, Grammy-winning producer for the Black Keys. Oh, cool! So he's got a studio down there. So yeah. we're gonna we're gonna do uh, an album down there. So and who's who's we? What project? Oh, sorry, that? that's uh, with Steve Baskin. Uh, oh, that's another kind of uh, gig I've had since gosh, probably ten years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done a couple, uh, two of Steve's albums. He's got three albums. I I played drums on. Most of those two albums, two of the albums, is and a guitarist, a guitar singer. More, um, is he more, like a blues guy? More so? no, he is a uh, he's kind of a power pop artist okay. that has trended more ter- towards um, Americana. Okay, and so I don't know uh, really what <laughs> what to expect with the new project. <laughs> I've done some remote tracks for him for his new album that mm-hmm. have been just killer, killer mm-hmm. songs, yeah. and a lot of fun to do, but. Uh, now working with Mark about uh, Austin, we're going to see what direction he takes us. Right, so. right. So you you set up these profiles on on Sound Better and Air Gigs, and and some of it comes to you like just with from word of mouth. But is is it the same kind of thing with like promoting a record or or booking a band? Like, did you find that spending some money on promoting that? helped yeah you have to yeah again getting back to the self-promotion thing you have Mm -hmm. to let people know that you've got a room you've got good gear Mm -hmm. and you've got experience Mm -hmm. you know and and that's that's the biggest thing is you know is is making sure people know that and so you have to self-promote yourself right and and the good news about air gigs and sound better is it kind of does that for you you're on their platform right but there's also you know, a hundred other, other drummers from all over the world on there too. And, and I, I'm always curious, I guess I need to ask the, you know, the next artist that, that I work with, why did you pick me? Right. But when you get hired, you don't care. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, great. Cool. You know, listen to the song and oh, that's okay. When do you need it? Right. Uh, by Saturday. Perfect. It's Monday, five days, no problem. Yeah. You know, chart out the song and, 
It's yeah, like it's like Mark so. Mark Marin says. It's not enough that somebody likes me. I need to know why. <laughs> exactly. That's right. So I haven't asked that. And maybe I shouldn't. Uh, I guess uh, you know you put on there what you know what you want people to hear and uh, what's some of your best work. And uh-huh. so I've gone through all the tracks I've done over the years, which I've been fortunate to play on quite a few, and yeah. and uh, and just put up what I think is some of the best work. So. And how do you how do you navigate what you charge? Are those platforms just like a set rate and people take it or leave it, or is there a negotiation that happens? Yeah, so it's pretty much a set rate. Uh-huh. And of course, both of those uh, uh, groups or both of the platforms take a little cut. Right. So I started off kind of, I, I probably lowballed myself a little bit just to see if I could get some, some work. And I've uh, raised my, my rates, not by much. Mm-hmm. I kind of looked at similar drummers and what they're offering and some of the quality they're offering. And I'm, I'm I think, on the same page mm-hmm. uh, as far as they are and, and just raised it to be in line with them. Because you don't want to underprice yourself and obviously you don't want to overprice yourself. Right. I mean, you've got some guys that are, you know, uh, have played on multi Grammy winning albums that are charging $400 a song. And Mm -hmm. of course I can't do that, but, uh, so it's, uh, it's a kind of a a balance and hopefully the small increase in the price will not hurt. Right. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah. Um, it's, it's a weird thing because like obviously on those platforms, it's kind of set and you don't have to, you know, negotiate or or play hardball with anybody, but in any, in any situation, like you know there's you got a balance between knowing what you're worth and and uh knowing what people can afford right you know i i saw an interview years ago with um kenny aronoff Mm -hmm. and he was talking about how you know just in in the digital age um even he can't always command the, the same rates that he used to, whether it's for a, a session or a tour or whatever. Right, right. And he's had people come to him, you know, producers or, or engineers or artists and say like, man, I really want you on this project, but I know I can't afford you. And, and his answer is, well, what can you afford? Right. Like if, if we can find a gap in my schedule where I don't have anything else going on and like, I'd love to work with you. Let's right. figure out what we can do. Um, have you have you dealt with that at all? Like in your studio, yeah. people people come to you and say like I have this much money and right. I really want you, but yeah, definitely. And and I think musicians, it seems like some musicians tend to undersell themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a service that's you know necessary in our in our world, music and musicians obviously providing that service and you know getting these gigs. You know, I think some of us think, well, I just want this gig so bad, I'll take it for whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that's selling ourselves short in some some instances. And I'm a fine, I'm finding that with this the, the jazz group, my my project, my my jazz project, trying to make sure that okay, I'm not a big name, but I also got some heavy hitters, and I got to make sure they're getting taken care of, right. and, and I make some money to cover my costs and things like that. So it's it's a balance, and it's definitely it's definitely a struggle. I think for me, and I think a lot of us struggle with that. But there's definitely been some projects where. Uh, a producer or a songwriter said, I have three songs I can pay you X. You mm-hmm. want to do it? Well, let me listen to the music. Listen to the music. Man, this is fantastic. Right. Um, I did that with a project, uh, I guess, a couple years ago. And when we played it, we tracked it and listened back. And I got the final product. I said, this is going to, this is going to, this has the potential of being huge. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was, that was amazing talking about promoting this. This person is not, this guy named James Harris, uh, young, I think he just graduated from Kennesaw. Um, absolutely brilliant singer uh plays at one of the churches that i play on on a regular basis but did a a three-song ep didn't have a whole lot of money 
because uh, I knew him. I said, sure, let, let me do it. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, the guys involved were good friends, and, and the songs turned out to be absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. My kids like them. Let's <laughs> so, just say something. Yeah, they yeah. You know, they don't love jazz fusion, but they love, you know, James's stuff. So it's more pop uh, type of stuff. So, yeah, it really depends on the project, but I was super excited to work on that, and that's done extremely well on Spotify and, and yeah. Apple Music and stuff yeah. like that. So, And, I mean, that's, that's the thing. If you, get, if you get offered a project, whether it's a live thing or a recording thing, like even... Even if the money might not be there, right. something else might be there. Exactly. Whether it's getting to play with amazing people or like going going through a new process yourself, right? right. Making that record for you, right? Is, you're, I'm sure you're not getting rich off that record. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> but like you know, it, it seems like with a, a project like that, the process is kind of the point. That's right. Um, and and you can take that approach, I think, as a sideman, as a, as a hired gun. Sometimes, right? Like, you know, if if you have the time, if if that time. Um, you know, if, if other sources of income aren't competing for that time, right. go do it. Right. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. Especially yeah. if it's easy where I can literally walk downstairs. My kit's already set up. Everything's mic'd up. I literally turn on my system and chart the song and I'm done usually in an hour. Right. Probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> hour, hour and a half tops if I do it a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Send it to the artists, wherever they are, whether locally or globally. And they send it back and say, this sounds great. Or, hey, can you use a different snare? No problem. Do another take. It's, it's the good news with today's technology and, and being online and everything. It's super easy just to go downstairs or in your room and, yeah. and track. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure Kenny Aronoff's the same way. He's got an awesome studio in, in California. And it's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be sitting around, you know, reading the paper anyways. I'll make a little bit of money and right. knock out these tunes. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other kind of big piece of your of your playing career is is the church gig, yeah, which you've been doing for a decade or something. Gosh, yeah, uh, two thousand and eleven, I think. So coming up on it, yes. Okay, seven, so eight, eight years, seven, eight years, almost yeah. almost a decade. Yeah, yeah. So this is a big church you play at. It is. Yeah. What church is it? It's called Johnson Ferry Baptist Church. Okay. Um, and we were we were talking the other day about how this is like, you know, this and and many church gigs are major productions they are absolutely yeah <laughs> um so what was you know just in the last seven eight years just since you've been there i think church gigs have have gone to another level as far as the you know the production of it all so what um you know just take us take us through your your journey in that in that gig yeah, so um, we started going to this church because actually the Memory Dean guys uh, were going there and said, mm-hmm. "Hey, you should check out this church. They've got they got you know great pastor and some awesome stuff going on." So we checked it out. Our family loved it, and it was really never a, an idea that I had that I was going to play music in church. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's just not. It wasn't really clicking with me. My wife actually met some of the guys in the music department and figured out, "Hey, my husband's a drummer." take them seriously, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everybody says, oh, I play drums, I play guitar. Oh, right. yeah, right, whatever. Right. Uh, she somehow had the, you know, she very persuasive and said, no, trust me, he's actually, you know, pretty good. Mm-hmm. So they checked it out and, and they hired me to, to play some uh, services. And, you know, it's, it's. Um, I think, you know, that has been a very fulfilling uh, opportunity for me. Uh, I think uh, just both personally and as a musician as well, because, you know, it, it's, you're learning new music every week mm-hmm. when you play. Um, and, you know, the responsibilities are, are pretty huge. We were talking the other day that it's kind of like a theater show or yeah. you know, the pressure is there because you're live. Right. You're playing in front of, you know, a thousand people or more, mm-hmm. depending on the service. And there's people watching online as well. So it's streamed 
you know, online as well. So you have that and you've got the in-ears and you've got the click you have to manage and, you know, and all these people are looking at you because yeah. the video camera's in your face, <laughs> you know, right. so, uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's a high demand, uh, but it's very rewarding because, you know, uh, the thing about playing at, I think any church is small or large is you're there for a reason. You're there to play music, to inspire people, to worship, uh, God in whatever situation, whatever God they, they believe in. Right. But, um, and so your job is to support the, you know, the worship team to bring that message through. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been a lot of fun. And, you know, it's, um, it's gone from, you know, when we first started playing, they're kind of a small production in the basement and they added on a, a whole new, uh, gym that's kind of turns into a, a, a worship service on, on Sundays. And, uh, it's been pretty cool to see it go from really small to now the huge production that it is. Mm-hmm. And with that comes more people coming, which obviously the church is doing the right thing and people are responding to that, mm-hmm. whether it's North point community church or Johnson Ferry or, you know, whatever church it is, it's, um, it's, it's a big business, yeah. <laughs> especially in Metro Atlanta and Texas and mm-hmm. other, other places. So right. it's a lot of fun. It's very fulfilling. Yeah. I've and met some great people too. Oh my gosh. Musicians coming in and out and great people and great musicians. And just, it's a great, it's a really, really cool hang. Yeah. And it's, it's an opportunity I think for, for a lot of musicians to develop new skills. Absolutely. Cause yeah. like you, you might get hired for a church gig where like you've, you've got to learn Ableton or That's right. you've got to, you know, learn to play with ears in a click if you never have before. Right. And, and loops think, and loops and right. backing tracks too. Right. right. So like, I think, you know, churches are a way for, for players. I think churches are more likely to hire players who are inexperienced in that kind of stuff. And if, if the church, if the production team is just learning how to use that stuff themselves, you know, if it's a smaller church and right. they're gradually stepping up their game, you can step up your game yeah. with them. Whereas in the touring world or the, you know, the, the recording world, like you got to have that shit in place. You got to have it down. Like, if they're looking right. for a drummer for their tour, it's like, do you know Ableton? No. Well, shit. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and this, and, and you're right. If you start off with a smaller church and they're looking to grow their congregation, right? By, you know, entering in uh, modern worship, contemporary worship type of songs, which is very popular right now mm-hmm. in the church world, that's going to help you grow as a musician. And you know, you might get to a point where you know Ableton really well and you can play with a click extremely well and loops and backing tracks where you might get a gig from it and say, mm-hmm. Hey, I need somebody that knows this. You know, this. you play at this church. I know that you have to do this at this church. Why don't you come on the road with me or play some gigs with me? Right. Okay. Uh, and that, you know, it, you never know who's listening. Right. You know, and, and that's any gig, but yeah. Um, and you it, never know who's listening. It reminds me of uh, Disneyland. Cause like I played at Disneyland for that's four right, years yeah. and, and like the, the church world, it's kind of its own little world. And when, when you're there, it's just like, that's right. what you're doing. But you meet all these musicians who do all this other stuff and, and it can be this entree into all kinds of other gigs. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So yeah, other gigs, other skills. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts 
drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about was uh, kind of the, the the confluence of your of your music career and your political science degree, right? Because recently you were you were involved with um, is it the Georgia Music Partners? Correct, that's um, right. and that's kind of advocating with uh, state and local government right. to support music and arts infrastructure Correct, in yeah. Georgia. That's right. So you talk about that, that process okay. and, and what exactly you did. With. Yeah. So um, a few years ago, I became a voting member of the Recording Academy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you know much about that, but that's obviously the Grammys. Mm-hmm. And in order to be a voting member, you have to have so many credits. And they verify all that. And if, if you have enough credits, I think it's 12 or something like that, they, they offer you a voting membership. So I became that. And the Grammys... Um, obviously, they serve their purpose uh, and do a great job of promoting music and music education, but they also have a big piece in advocacy at the federal level. I think there was a bill that passed last week out of the House that's uh, really going to transform the music industry uh, in the United States, mostly because of the digital streaming and making sure artists are getting paid what they deserve with the streaming, as well as songwriters and producers, which were kind of left out. Mm-hmm. So that's a really important piece. Uh, for the whole music community. But so a number of years ago, I can't remember how long it's been, uh, the Atlanta chapter of the Recording Academy and some uh, some local folks as well, Tammy Hurt, Mala Sharma, uh, I'm probably missing some folks. If I am, I apologize. But uh, we're part of founding uh, George Music Partners. The goal was to uh, start this organization and basically like the Grammys were doing at the federal level, work on the state level to pass legislation to grow Georgia's music industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, Georgia has a rich history from James Brown to Otis Redding to REM, as we talked about. Yeah, a little Richard. It's unbelievable, a little yeah. Richard. Uh, you know, you don't think about it living in Georgia, but Georgia has more history than most other places, actually. It's I was very thinking diverse, about it. too. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Allen Brothers. I yeah. Mean, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, very diverse. So anyway, so they, you know, they formed this organization, which is an advocacy organization. Uh, I'm involved with them. I'm on their advisory board and do cons- some consulting with them as well. And so they, they worked on legislation for years um, unsuccessfully. And uh, our mutual friend, Kevin Spencer, is a local musician, yeah. bass player, guitarist, singer, uh, brilliant uh, musician, uh, hooked us up, got us together and said, you, you guys need to know each other because he can talk politics and music. He's done all he's done both. Mm-hmm. And you guys need somebody like that. So mm-hmm. they, they got us together and uh, basically I've been helping them um, the last three years, two and a half years, three years, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, help them pass this legislation. So. We worked with uh, the music community locally, with the Recording Academy, uh, with, you know, we had a lot of musicians come to the state capitol and just say, hey, you know, we we want our industry to grow. The film industry is the, the biggest in the world right mm-hmm. now in Georgia. There's more films, major feature films uh, filmed in Georgia than anywhere else mm-hmm. currently, which is pretty amazing, actually, yeah. to see that grow. And so music saw that and said, we want to do the same thing. We already have the history. We have you know, thousands of, of great musicians here. Uh, and so the goal was to do something similar to pass legislation. And these are tax credits right. to incentivize people in investment here, companies to come here. And so we were fortunate to work with, you know, uh, Brandon Bush and Christian Bush, the brothers mm-hmm. in Sugarland, and, 
and with Christian solo uh, career as well. Uh, the guys from Collective Soul, Ed Roland, um, several guys from Zach Brown, uh, John Driscoll Hopkins, and Coy Bowles, and a few others. Uh, and there's a lot of other folks that I'm leaving out, but those are just some, some guys that have been very involved, as well as Tammy Hurd and, and Mala Sharma. And they're, you know, Tammy's a drummer, and Mala's been in production uh, with Rick Rubin and, and other folks for, for many years, Brendan O'Brien. So, we just kind of all got together. Michelle Kaplinger is the head of the Recording Academy office here. We got together, and uh, they kind of told me what their goals were, and uh, we worked on it, and we were able to pass legislation last last year. Um, in 2017, it's called the Georgia uh, Music Investment Act. Uh, it was a huge win for Georgia, a huge win for the music industry. Uh, governor Deal, who's our governor right now, was very supportive of this. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle was very, very supportive, huge music fan. And so with their support, we were able to get it done as a community. Right. Um, I know a lot of our mutual friends were involved. And the goal was to bring jobs here um, and help the musicians. I think they said there's 20,000 musicians in the state of Georgia from Savannah to Macon to Atlanta, all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was to help the existing folks extend their career, get more opportunities, as well as create an atmosphere to help keep the film industry here. When they're finished, they wrap up and they go to L.A. or London and do their soundtracks. Right. Well, the goal was to try to keep those here. Right. We have an incredible symphony that's won, I can't remember how many Grammys, mm-hmm. but numerous Grammys, and just a bunch of great uh, producers and musicians and uh, composers, et cetera, in Georgia. Yeah. So the goal was to try to you know, incentivize these film companies to stay here, you know, do your soundtracks here, do your trailer music here. Um, and then TV companies do your commercials here, you right. know, your jingles and things like that. Mm-hmm. So to create that environment that LA has, but it's not just natural here in Georgia. And so the investment act with these incentives, hopefully will do that. And, uh, the past last year, and it's really focuses on three things. One is touring tour origination mm-hmm. where, you know, bands will go that where wherever it's cheapest around the, the country to uh, rehearse for their tour. Mm-hmm. And as you, as you know, some of these productions, U2, for example, um, they'll rent out a stadium for two months. Right. And they're there locally and they're spending money and they have hundreds of people that are working for them. And they're, you know, going to restaurants and staying in hotels and buying, you know, going to local retailers and things like that. So the economic investment or the economic impact of a U2 kind of tour in that community for a month or two months or however long they're rehearsing is massive. Mm -hmm. And so we have in Georgia, we're very fortunate to have, of course, we have Phillips, but then we have arenas that are empty sometimes in Macon and Columbus and Augusta. Uh, and other venues throughout the state that, you know, they're busy sometimes and other times they're completely empty. Mm-hmm. And so the goal was to create an incentive to bring these bands to Georgia, <clears throat> excuse me, and get them to stay here for an extended period of time and invest in Georgia. And we, we thought that would be an opportunity to create a lot of jobs. Yeah. So that was one, one part of it. The other was, I said before, was to try to get these film companies to stay here by hiring local musicians, hiring the symphonies and composers and, and uh, other musicians to help compose their soundtracks and their trailers and local studios, local studios. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so that was part of it as well. So there's a recording credit, there's a kind of a tour origination credit. Um, and so that's the goal as well as there's some post-production stuff in there as well is to try to just really give a boost to the music industry in Georgia. And I know that 
I don't want to speak for Christian Bush, but I know he was very, very involved. He and Brandon uh, were very involved. And I know that that's already resulted in some work for them. Christian's got a local studio here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's right here in Decatur. It's in Decatur. It? That's right. Yeah. So hopefully, um, again, I don't want to speak for him, but I know that that's created some opportunities for him yeah. uh, as well, which is fantastic. And so was this process actually, you know, you and or other you know members of the of the organization, like actually getting in rooms with state legislators? Yeah. And yeah, we were hitting the grind <laughs> <laughs> and we had, uh, you know, the cool thing, you know, for the legislators is they wanted to meet the country stars or the Christian star, you know, Christian music stars or the rock stars. Right. And, and so that, uh, and, and we had some great involvement from from a lot of those quote unquote stars, and mm-hmm. they were very involved, and they saw the benefit of it. And so having them, you know, I can only say so much, but having them come in, a Christian Bush, a Mac Powell from Third Day, or, or whoever, uh, you know, come in and say this is going to directly result in more business for my company. It's going to result in me hiring more people. And I'm not saying this for one particular person, but these we we had a lot of input. And we had a lot of interest from uh, organizations throughout the United States um, that signed on to endorse the legislation. And I can't remember all the names, but the list would blow you away. Because I remember seeing it and thinking, wow, I mean, Jim Henson Productions and, uh, you know, the record companies and Zach Brown's Southern Ground uh, Company. And Mm -hmm. it was pretty overwhelming. And so... And I really can't take a lot of credit for this. The Mala and Tammy, who are some of the founders, Michelle, uh, were very involved in putting this strategy together and getting all of those organizations from all over the country, actually all over the world. We had a couple of companies from London mm-hmm. uh, that were very interested in, in what we were doing. Um, and they really put the groundwork together in, in energizing the music community. We had like a music day at the Capitol. We had several hundred musicians from all over the state come, come to the Capitol. Uh, we had some music playing. The Yacht Rock guys played right. um, one time. Um, so, you know, just energizing the music community to realize that this is a good thing for their career in the mm-hmm. future and for the state of Georgia to look at as a jobs opportunity, which I really do think that it's going to create thousands of jobs and and they do as well. Mm -hmm. And like I said, we've already seen that uh, and it just became effective in January of this year. Yeah. yeah. So we're already starting to see some results. And in addition to creating new jobs, wasn't, wasn't there also a piece of it that dealt with like existing studio space and there was, there was some zoning thing or some noise, Uh, noise ordinance. So that was, that was separate. So that was uh, city of Atlanta. Okay. Right. Right. Uh, A little bit separate, but the organizations got involved in that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the state level, we're trying to promote um, the music industry. And at the time we had, we had some uh, a situation in one of the studios that so the, the local governments got involved and we're trying to basically create some more uh, I forget exactly what it was I think it was some more zoning restrictions on studios which right. really would have hurt the studios in Atlanta right and frankly kind of counterproductive from what we were trying to do at the state level was get more studios here. Right. And it was going to, so. it was going to be retroactive for existing yeah. studios, That's right? right? Yes. Not just affecting new studios. Yes. Um, and so that was not good for the music industry. Fortunately that went away mm-hmm. uh, through a lot of education. Um, and that's what it's all about is educating, whether it's a local city council member or a state legislator or a member of Congress, educating them about the music industry, the impact. Cause I think a lot of these folks, what we found is that, Everybody listens to music yeah. for the most part, right? Um, and you know it's part of their their lives. You you have a song when you get married. You know you have 
a venue that you and your wife go to for the first time, mm-hmm. Hollywood Bowl or, or whoever or wherever. So we same way with my wife. We have songs that we listen to or we hear. It's like, oh, that remember we were doing this or we were, you know, on a date or whatever. Mm-hmm. So everybody has those stories and it kind of creates your life story. So, but they didn't really look at music seriously mm-hmm. and, and as, as a job creator. And frankly, I'm not sure they did with the film industry either until it really paid off. And yeah. I mean, you live here, you know, there's studios all over the place yeah. from Atlanta to Conyers to you know, Fayette County, which, you know, uh, not exactly in Atlanta, but they're spreading out everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, that's really been a a great example of how the music industry can kind of, uh, I don't want to say copy, but kind of follow on the same path that the film industry has done and hopefully create a really good environment here in in Georgia. Right. And I think with some, um, with some legislators or with some, um, you know, state governments or, uh, or politicians, you know, musicians and artists, when they're when they're dealing with government, um, I think their argument tends to be like art for art's sake, right. right? Like you, the government, should support us, the artists, because art is awesome and art is necessary, right. and that's true. But I I think um, what what Georgia has succeeded in doing, whether it's with the film or the um, the music or anything else is connecting it to business and connecting yeah, it to the economy. Absolutely. And in a way it kind of sucks that you have to do that because like we shouldn't have to convince anybody right. that, that government should invest in art. Um, but you know, when you can point to business being done and jobs being created, um, that sells, that's a lot more convincing for some people. Yeah. And um, like I said, it took, it took some time to, to get, uh, policymakers to look at the music industry differently. Right. Because like you said, all oh, the arts, you know, that's just something you do. Right. You know, and, but when we, when we're able to, to make the case that, you know, having a studio here is going to create jobs, having a band come here is going to, you know, if a band, if a Bon Jovi or U2 or whoever, mm-hmm. Foo Fighters, uh, if they, let's say the Foo Fighters ran out, they were just here. So I'll talk about them. I know in London they rented out Pinewood Studios in London for their European tour. Well, we have Pinewood here in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And now it's very busy. It's got Marvel and it's got all these cool films coming out of Georgia. But let's say they're not busy for a month mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, Foo Fighters could come in, rent Pinewood. It's got it's big enough for a huge stage. Um, the impact that a Foo Fighters or a band like that would have, they're going to hire hundreds of people. Um, some local, some not. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll hire some temporary folks to help them with lighting or whatever. They'll probably hire a local lighting company. Right. They'll hire caterers, bring those caterers in. They'll hire, uh, you know, whoever to come in, different businesses to come in and help them basically rehearse mm-hmm. and help them get ready for their tour. And and we think that's going to create a lot of jobs. Yeah. And um, obviously it worked because uh, <laughs> the governor supported it and, and he signed it in the law last year and it's, right. uh, it's and very it, exciting so you don't you don't even have to go all the way to the upper echelon like that yeah, like absolutely. you know if there are if there are other bands locally or regionally that that want to come here to rehearse or That's come right. here to record they're not going to bring hundreds of people with them right but they're going to spend money here great example that's a great example snarky puppy incredible, yeah. incredible band out of Texas they recorded I don't know if they got this credit, but I know they recorded one of their albums in New Orleans, mm-hmm. in Louisiana. Louisiana had a similar credit. I assume they got it. I don't know, but hopefully they did. Right. They did a live recording. They could do that here. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that really helped them uh, you know, get huge because of some of the online uh, videos they had, which were amazing. Right. Um, but you're right. It doesn't have to be a huge band. It could be a local band as well. There is a minimum investment 
And so it does kind of weed out some of the regional bands. Mm -hmm. The goal was to try to really get the larger bands to come here because they're the ones, you know, Zach Brown's creating hundreds of jobs when they rehearse. Right. And some of these bands were going to uh, Arizona or New Mexico, Mm -hmm. your home state or, or other places because it was inexpensive. And we, you know, the goal of Georgia Music Partners and the Recording Academy was to get these bands to stay here right. and to rehearse here. I mean, if you think about the country charts, um, just look at the country charts. Most of the artists are from Georgia or have some connection to Georgia, whether it's mm-hmm. Zach Brown, Jason Aldean, Lady Annabellum, et cetera. Georgia Floral Line has Georgia roots, obviously. Um, Luke Bryan is from uh, South Georgia. So you start thinking about it. It's like, wow, all these guys are from Georgia, yeah. but they're leaving. They're right. going to Nashville. Right. And Nashville obviously has an incredible infrastructure already in place. Let's create that here. Yeah. And like I said, the good news is you have to create, it's really a coalition of starting from musicians to producers to politicians to, um, you know, chambers of commerce and those kind of organizations. You got to get everybody to buy in. Mm-hmm. And it's what the film industry did. And it's what we did with the music industry. And um, fortunately, it worked. And um, we got the bill passed. And hopefully, we'll create some jobs. I think it, uh, And actually provide opportunities for all of us to work more. Yeah. So. Yeah. Bring it. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm ready. It's exciting. <laughs> it's kind of hard to believe that we did it. Because now it's passed and it's kind of quiet. But there's a lot of promoting going on. I know during the Grammys, we, we had some folks go up there to New York and promote Georgia and hopefully that'll continue to happen mm-hmm. both in LA and here and uh, in Atlanta as well as New York and other places. Well, yeah, and it's a long game, man. Like legislation, legislation moves slow, and the Very slow. and the effects of it manifest slowly. Usually, like sometimes there's an overnight thing where the Supreme Court rules on something right. and bang, yeah, it's bam, different. Yeah. That's but, rare, though. Right, it's yeah. rare, and most of the times, especially with these kind of business incentives, like it takes a few years to to really manifest. And I think musicians, especially, are uh, not always willing to do that because our right. like our gratification is much more instant. It's you know, immediate. we Absolutely. get applause right after the right, exactly. song. You know, we get some money right after the gig. <laughs> we get even when we make a record, like yeah. we just start selling the record. Yeah. And you know, but legislation is is different. Um, it takes a long time. And yeah. as I mentioned before, I don't know all the details about the federal bill that passed last week, but that was a huge win uh, for, like I said, songwriters, composers, producers. Uh, artists, uh, and it's really going to—it's a—it's a game changer as far as compensation and rights yeah. of these songs. And it's—I uh, know they've been—I know the Recording Academy and the Recording Industry Association of America and others have been working on it for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And finally, uh, at least one step passed last week, and a couple more steps, obviously, through the Senate and the President. So. Cool. Uh, well, it's, an inter- it's an interesting process. Good on you, man. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a good thing you did. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. Thanks to Brian for that talk and for all he's doing on behalf of Georgia musicians. It's a good reminder that we can all be more engaged with the political process and make it work for us in many different ways. Pay us a visit at workingdrummer.net. You can donate to the podcast via PayPal and Patreon there. And please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. We love hearing from you. Matt Krause is back with you next week. Thanks, as always, to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. And thanks for listening. Cheers.
I think one of them is um, Steely Dan, Alive in America. Uh, it's absolutely yeah. brilliant. A bunch of people have put a Steely Dan record on there, and it's usually Asia. Asia's incredible. I think somebody did Gaucho, but nobody said Alive in America. And it's funny you mentioned that, because that was my my introduction to Steely Dan. Me too. Well, it wasn't my introduction, but it was the first record that I got into. That's exactly the same with me. That's, yeah. that's probably why I picked it. That's Man, that's and really it's, cool. And uh, it's Dennis Chambers and Peter Erskine. Yeah. And I heard that. I said, this band is absolutely killing. Mm-hmm. And, of course, now I have all their albums. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but, yeah, but, no, I mean, Asia's incredible, obviously, with Steve Gadd and others. But uh, but that record, it's a cool cross-section it is, of, like, yeah. a bunch of different albums. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, to hear Erskine and Chambers live is just, yeah, you it's know. Yeah, in, it's incredible. so good. Um, so that's that's probably one of them. Um, you know, this is going to kind of be off the an oddball um uh, choice here, but Level Forty Two is one of my favorite bands. Huh. And um, when I was at USF in Tampa, I remember one of the other drummer uh, friends of mine in, in school there gave me uh, Guaranteed, mm-hmm. which has Gary Husband playing drums. And I remember listening to it, and I thought, this is an ab- absolutely brilliant band. And it's not kind of like their pop stuff from the '80s, which is also great. I mean, they're incredible musicians. But was that, that they did like something about you? Yes. And, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, so on this album is Alan Holdsworth, Gary Husband, uh, who's a drummer and a keyboardist, mm-hmm. but he plays drums on this. Of course, Mark King, play, King playing bass. It's kind of like a fusion album with lyrics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I remember hearing that and thinking, "This is unbelievable." What's the name so of the record? It's called Guaranteed. It's Guaranteed. very hard to find. Okay. I don't think it's on Spotify, but it's you can probably find it, you know a used use, uh, copy somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's that's amazing. Um, you know, I think probably, um, gosh, um, Love Supreme, John Coltrane mm-hmm. is incredible. Had a huge impact on me when I was younger, uh, and still does. Yeah. Every time I listen to it, it still blows me away. Um, I have to put something in there with Dave Weckl, probably because <laughs> he was one of my early earliest influences. But um, probably Eye of the Beholder, uh-huh. electric electric band, yeah. electric Korea electric band was incredible uh, with with Weckl on there. Uh, how many is that? Four. That's four. Oh, I gosh, I don't even know what the fifth one would be. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of my go-to on a regular basis, but jeez. Um, um, Probably a Yellow Jackets album. Um, I love the Yellow Jackets, mm-hmm. one of my favorite bands. Yeah. Um, probably either Spin or Politics, early early Yellow Jackets albums. Okay. Will Kennedy. Yeah. First reincarnation. Yeah, yeah. Before he left and then came back. Right. And um, so after he came back was was like Blue Hats, right? Uh, I think he was still there. And then he left okay. and Marcus Baylor did... I think two or three albums, and mm-hmm. then Will Kennedy came back with, I think, A Rise on the Road, okay, and then maybe two others after yeah. that. Um, what were the two you mentioned? Uh, Politics or The Spin. Right, okay. Um, early Yellow Jackets. Yeah. It was yeah. after Robin Ford, but it was kind of a four-piece with Will mm-hmm. Kennedy and, and the other guys. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. That's, that's I mean, such... there's so many others, but those are just ones I could think of. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. You mentioned yellow jackets cause I'm making the connection to your record now. Yeah. Um, like it's, it's I, I see, I see the influence, okay. you know, cause <laughs> they're a huge influence. I think it's one of the few bands I have every album. Yeah. Steely Dan's another one. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool, man. So, 